Good morning, Lakeview Church. It's good to be with you today, and I want to just take a moment, look right in that camera, and just welcome all of you who are joining us online. We're so glad that you're here, glad that you're taking time out of your weekend to join us. And whether you're watching live in this moment right now, or whether you're watching this sometime later on demand, we're glad that you're here. And I know all of your brothers and sisters here in this room just want to welcome you. So Lakeview Church, can we welcome our online congregation this morning? I know that we say this a lot, but I want to say it again because I want to make sure everybody knows that Lakeview Church is an everyday church for everyday people, and we are striving every single day to follow Jesus, live generously, and make a difference, and we want to do that every single day of our lives, and if this is your first time or you're new around here, we just want to say that you're welcome here. We want you to be a part of this community. One of the things that's true about us is that while we're all striving to follow Jesus, live generously, and make a difference, none of us has arrived at the destination yet. We're all learning, we're all growing, we're all at different places in the journey, and we just want to invite you to join the journey with us. Right? We call ourselves a next step community because we believe that every single person is on a journey of spiritual growth. And we believe that the most important step in your spiritual journey is the next one. So wherever you are on the journey, if you want to move forward, it's just the next step that matters most. And so if this is your first Sunday here with us, you took a next step today. You, you came. Congratulations, you joined the Next Step community and we're glad that you're here. And maybe you've been coming for a while or, or maybe this is your first Sunday and, and the next step for you is to just let us know who you are. As Jared was talking about earlier, just fill out that communication card and just formally say to us, hey, I'm here and I wanna be a part and, and we'll connect with you and we'll help you begin your journey. Or maybe some of you have been exploring what it means to be a part of the Christian faith, and maybe you've not yet felt ready to take a step to actually believe in Jesus and accept him as your savior. And for you, maybe the next step that you're going to take is just to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Or maybe, like Jared was talking about, it's baptism next week. And it's not too late. If you want to be baptized next week, if you've accepted Jesus and, and you want to go public with your faith, we would love to have you be baptized next week. So just see me right after the service and we'll work with you to, to make that happen. We just want you to take your next step, whatever that is, just figure out what the next step is. It might be a, a small next step, it might be a big next step, but find your next step and take it so that you can join the journey with us of becoming everything that God wants us to be. Now, we started 2023 as a church saying that we wanted to live out Matthew 6.33 this year. And Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be given to you as well. And we took that verse and we've kind of formulated it into a theme for the year. We've said that our theme this year for 2023 is that we want to put God first, we want to put God first in everything. Put him first in our day, put him first in our week, put him first in our finances, in our school, in our work, in our relationships, in everything that we are and in everything that we do. And we've been especially focused during the month of February on putting God first in our relationships. 
We started this series back at the beginning of the month, and we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and we really laid the theological foundation for what God wants from human beings and from our relationships. In the second week of the series, we went to the New Testament, and we talked about Matthew 19, where Jesus teaches us about God's plan and purpose for human relationships and marriage and and singleness, and we spent some time kind of digging into that topic to discover not only God's plan, but God's purpose for marriage and singleness. And then last week, we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we talked about what does it look like for us to honor God and to put God first in, in the way we use our bodies, and, and especially as it relates to sexual ethics. This morning, in the fourth and final installment of this series, a, a message that I'm calling, It's All About Relationship, I want to kind of step back from one particular passage of scripture or one particular relationship issue, and I actually want to look at kind of the entirety of scripture with a wide angle lens. And for some of you, this is going to be review because I've actually shared some of this content with you from this stage. And for some of you, I shared it and you were here, but you forgot it. And it's going to seem like you're hearing it for the first time all over again. So you're welcome. And for some of you, you are newer here and you've not heard this before, but I I really do believe that there is power, not just in looking at individual passages, though there is incredible power in doing that. There is a lot of power in understanding the big picture of scripture to see how did it start, how has the story unfolded through the narrative, and where is it all heading Because when you understand the big picture of scripture, then when you go to a particular passage or you study a particular topic, you understand where that fits. And so I want to just walk through with a wide angle lens kind of the entirety of scripture. And we're going to look at scripture in four parts. And then after we do that, I'm going to zoom back in because it's not just about the wide angle. I'm gonna zoom back in to help you understand how the story of scripture ought to impact our everyday lives. Because when we get up tomorrow morning, we have to live Monday in light of this big story that God is writing. So I wanna do the wide angle lens first, and then we're gonna zoom in and talk about what it means for us. So, scripture in four parts. The first movement of scripture is the movement that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. It is the movement that we might call creation. Now, remember, we started this series in Genesis 1 and 2 because we said in order to understand God's plan for the world and for humanity and for relationships and for sex, we have to go back to the very beginning and we have to see how did God create it originally? Before anything was marred or damaged or broken or scarred by sin, we need to see what was in God's mind and what did God establish in this earth as the foundation of everything. And so we went back to Genesis chapter 1, and we saw at the beginning in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. Now, Now, we have made an assumption all throughout this series, and it's an assumption we're going to continue to make today, that God actually is 
the creator of the world. Now, I know there's lots of discussion about this in our world, and there are people who would say that, no, it just kind of happened. And I think that takes a whole lot more faith to believe that than to believe that there was someone, a person, an intelligent creator at the very beginning of everything that exists. And I know that when we read Genesis 1, there there are lots of things that we could talk about, lots of theories about how it was done, right? There's a big debate about, is there a gap between Genesis 1, verse 2, and Genesis 1, verse 3? There's a big big debate, big, big theory about that. Siri's trying to answer the question for us right now. There's debates about, was it a literal seven days? Or does each day represent some longer period of time? How did God actually create? Did he just speak it and it just instantly happened? Or or did did he speak something into existence that over time evolved into everything that is today? And while all of those discussions would be fun to have over a cup of coffee, and we could do that someday if you want to, We're not going to talk about those things today in this setting. Now, it's not that those questions are unimportant or that they're insignificant. I think they matter a lot. I just think that they don't necessarily pertain to what we're doing in this series right now. Because sometimes I think we get wrapped up in trying to take the Bible and we try to make it into something that it is not. So we come to the Bible, and rather than letting the Bible be what the Bible is, we try to force it into another category. We want it to be like a science textbook. Not just any science textbook. We want it to fit all of the modern categories when we think about what a science textbook is. And so we push the Bible into that mold. But I want to just let you know today that the Bible was never written to be a science textbook. Now, that's not to say that there's nothing about science that we can find in the Bible. Certainly we can. But the Bible was written for a primary purpose. And the primary purpose wasn't to answer all of those debates that we were just talking about. The primary purpose is to tell us about God to tell us who he is. The Bible, at its core, is a theological text. See, the reality is, is that God is so high, so mighty, so powerful, so big, so other than us that we could not know him unless he revealed himself to us. We couldn't couldn't do enough science experiments or learn enough stuff to be smart enough to discern and figure out all of who God is. God has to actually say, I want you to know me and here's who I am. And when God reveals himself, he does that through the prophets and through the law in the Old Testament. He does it through the writings that we we read in the Old Testament. He does it most clearly through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, where we begin to see more of who God is. And he does it through the church that we read about in the book of Acts and the letters that, that fill out the New Testament. You see, the Bible is a written record of God's self revelation. So the most important question that we ought to figure out or or ask when we come to scripture is, what does this teach me about God? 
because God has given us the Bible so we can know him. And when we look at Genesis 1-1, the first thing we learn about God is that God is at the beginning of it all. He is the creator. We've made this assumption throughout the series and we'll continue to make that assumption because we're Christians. And Christians believe the Bible to be the living word of God. There should have been a bigger amen. I'm so appreciative. Al was with me. Thank you. I heard that. We believe the Bible is the living word of God. And so we take the Bible for what it says God created. As we look at this first movement and understand God is the creator, we learn an awful lot about God. And and rather than asking all the questions, is there a gap between verse two and verse three of some long period of time? Is it a literal seven days or is it a longer period of time? All that stuff, we could talk about all that, right? And if you want to, like, I like coffee. I'm just saying. And, And what's more, I love you. So if you want to talk about those things or anything, it doesn't have to be about this sermon. If there's anything that you want to talk about with me, let's get together. I like coffee and I love you. And I'd love nothing more than just to sit with you and answer questions or talk about theology, talk about faith, or just help you process what's going on in your life. So just let me know and we can get together and we can have those conversations. But rather than ask all these questions about all the creation theories and all that stuff this morning, I want to ask what I think is a more significant question. Not how did God create, but why did God create? Because I think that's where the real power is in this passage. Because when you read Genesis 1 and you assume that what the Bible says is true, that God created everything, then you have to ask the question, why would God do that? Why would God create all of this? And I think the answer is found when we get to the end of the creation account and God creates human beings in his own image. In Genesis chapter one, what we discover is that creation is a context for relationships. God creates all that he creates in the world. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars. He creates the land and the sea. Creates the animals, the plants, the fish. He creates everything that exists. And after he creates all of that, then we get to verse 26 where God says, let us make man in our own image. Let's make man after our likeness. And then God created human beings in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And after he did all of that, he steps back from his creation and it's the very first time that God says this creation is very good. He said it's good all along the way. There's nothing that he made that was bad. He he didn't make stuff and say, oh, that was a good try. He made everything, every point in creation, he says, that's good, that is good, that is good. And he makes stuff the next day, he says, that is good. 
But it's only after he creates human beings in his image that he steps back and he says, now that is very good. You see, human beings are the crowning achievement of the creation account. The reason there is a significant change in the language between what has been up to this point good and what is now very good is that human beings made in the image of God have been placed in the center of all that has been created, which says to me this is why God did it in the first place. That God was creating an environment, a situation, a a stage, a platform, a context where he could then create human beings for relationship, first with him and with each other. And we see this, it's played out in Genesis 1 and 2, because as soon as God creates human beings, what does he do? He invites human beings to partner with God. Unlike he does with anything else in creation, he says to Adam, why don't you help me govern and take care of and steward what I've created? He invites partnership. And then as they're beginning to partner together, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. By the way, that's the first time God says something is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. And so God creates another human being, not an exact copy, but someone who is like Adam and yet different from him. They stand face to face. They're similar, but they're different. They fit together. That's the way God designed it. God created the world just like he wants it to be And the crowning point of that is all about relationships. And why is that? Because God is a relational God. Now we've spent almost all of our time living in the perfect world of the Garden of Eden in this series. We've not spent a whole lot of time talking about what happened in Genesis 3. Right? It's like when you're watching a story unfold on your favorite show and everything's good, but you know something bad's getting ready to happen, right? The music changes and you just know, oh man, they're going to, they're going to open that door. They shouldn't open that door. Run away, run away, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's what happens next in the next movement of scripture. We see this perfect creation. Everything is just the way it's supposed to be. No sin, no imperfections. Everything is living up to God's purpose and God's plan. And then we get to Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, the story takes a turn. This is where the music changes. And you start to hear that ominous tone in the music and you think to yourself, don't open that door, run away. Do not eat that fruit. But this is what happens. The serpent, it says in verse one, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say? I want to just pause right there because this is why it was so important for us to acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God. Because the very first and most important way that the enemy will try to trip you up is he will ask you, did God really say that? 
And if you're not reading the word or you're not trusting that this is the word of God, when those questions come to your mind, you will throw this book away and you will live your life however you want to live it. And you will miss what God has planned for you. The serpent was crafty. Did God really say that? And look at how Eve responds to this question. Did God really say you must not eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? She says, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. She actually knew what God had said. She said, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now watch what the serpent does next. Oh, you won't die. I know God said that, but you didn't really understand what God meant. Let me explain to you the original language. And let me give you some context around all of these words and ideas. And let me tell you why that verse or that teaching of scripture doesn't matter or apply to your life. And we just write away God's word so we can do whatever we want to do. The word of God is not a springboard that we jump off from. It is a target that we are aiming our lives towards. And those are two different pictures. If you say, I'm going to read this and then I'm just going to jump off and do whatever I want to do with my life, you're not going to end up living out what God has planned for you. But if you hold up the word of God for what it is, a revelation, a record of God's revealing himself to us, and you say, I want to align my life with this word, and I want to live out this word in my life, all of a sudden, your life begins to take a trajectory, not of do as you please, but do as God says. And those two lives end up in two different places. Eve hears this rationale, and this is what happens next. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it, verse 6. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame. Shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that the man and the woman whom God had put together, they had entered into this marriage covenant and they were naked and unashamed. But when sin enters the world, when they break the boundaries that God has established and they eat of the fruit that they're not supposed to eat of, in that moment, sin enters the world. And what's the first result of sin? It is shame. We talked about this in this series, that if you're feeling shame, it's not from the Lord. The Lord does not want to pour shame on your life. The Lord actually wants you to live unashamed. That's the plan and the purpose and the intention of God. And yet, when we live our lives outside of God's plan, we are separated from him, and we often feel that shame. It gets piled onto our lives. 
Adam and Eve are feeling shame and, and they begin to cover themselves now. And then God comes in the next verse to walk with them in the cool of the day as he often did to, to relate to them, to have fellowship with them. And what do Adam and Eve do? They go and they hide themselves behind the trees. And as if God doesn't know what's going on, where are you guys? Oh, we're just hiding because we're naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Something's changed in this relationship. And, and then the blaming starts, right? Adam says, the one you gave me gave me the fruit. It's, it's your fault, God. And it's her fault, not my fault, casting blame. And Eve says, it's not me. It's this serpent. And so God just punishes them all. I mean, he's, he, just, he talks to the serpent and gives them a curse and talks to the woman and tells her what her sin is going to cost her. And then he talks to the, to the man and tells him what sin is going to cost him. Because what's happened is sin has entered this perfect world that God created. And what has occurred? Separation. God created the world for relationships that we would as human beings live in right relationship with God and we would live in right relationship with each other and we would live out the purpose and plan that God has for human beings and for the world around us that there would be unity and harmony and love and peace and we would together care for this creation. We would be fruitful and we would multiply and everything would be just the way God wanted it to be. But as human beings, we rebelled against God. God said, go this way. And we said, no, nah, we're going to go this way, God. We'll figure it out. Us and the serpent. We want the wisdom that you're holding back from us. So we're going to go down this other path because we think this other path is better than the one you've laid out for us. And right there is the core problem of a sinful humanity. How many of you have ever been to Italy? Raise your hand. Anybody been to Italy? I've not been, so I'm going to rely on you. Have you ever been to the, the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Everybody been there? Okay. Did you know it was originally intended to be the Tower of Pisa? I heard a pastor earlier this week say that, that when they set out to build the Tower of Pisa, they did not anticipate having a Leaning Tower of Pisa. But there was a flaw a fault in the foundation. And over time, the tower started to lean. And what was a fault that, that made it look different than it was supposed to look, that, that actually marred the original intention of the way that tower was to be built, that fault has now become a feature. And instead of acknowledging it as a fault that makes it different than what it was originally intended to be, that fault gets praised as a feature. This is what happens in humanity. God did not intend for humanity to be leaning. But when we rebelled against God, there was a crack placed in the foundation. 
And so we do not look like God originally intended for us to look. And we can do one of two things. We can talk about how do we recover God's original intention for our lives. And we're going to talk about that in the moment because that's what the Bible story unfolds to give to us. But what human beings are doing right now is they're just pointing to the fault, the crack in the foundation, and they're making it into a feature. And and what we're seeing in our world and in our culture right now is just this encouragement. You do you. You live however you want to live. If you think it will make you happy, then of course you should have it. And I just want to tell you this morning, that is a disastrous way to live your life. I'm not in any way this morning trying to be condemning or, 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 or be kind of shaming. I, I don't want to do any of that. I just want to tell you the truth. That if you think you are going to live a better life than the one God has for you to live, you are so wrong. You are so wrong. And you can try and try and try and run down that road as long as you want to run down it. But you're going to finally come to a place at some point. If not in this life, you will come to a place when you're going to realize the road you were on, if it's not the road God had for you, it is not going to end well. This is what sin does to us. It takes the original intention that God had for us to live in relationship with God and relationship with each other and and to have life as God intended it to be. And, And sin just pulls all of that apart. It separates us. It breaks the relationship. So what does God do in response? Well, in Genesis chapter three, if you get to the end of Genesis three, what you find is that this is the first record we have of God killing something. Adam and Eve sin against God. They eat the fruit they're not supposed to eat. And what you see at the end of Genesis chapter three is that God makes clothes for them. And he does that out of animal skins. This is the first sacrifice that God makes for humanity. And why does he do that? Because he wants to rebuild relationships. He wants to rebuild relationships. He wants to help them come back to each other and come back to him. This is who God is, which brings us to the third part of scripture, which is reconciliation. God creates the world and he creates it for relationship, relationship with him, relationship with each other. And then sin makes a mess of all of that. Shame, guilt, blaming, pushing each other away, all of those things, hiding from each other, all of those things just pull relationships apart. And what does God do? God steps into the picture and says, what can I do to bring things back together again? One of my favorite books in the New Testament is this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And there's so many great things about this letter that Paul writes. Just every single paragraph, every single sentence just has so much truth that can apply to our lives. But I really love Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul's talking about the fact, again, he's writing to Christians, and he says, all of you used to live that way. What way? The way of the world. And you were dead in your sins and in your transgressions. And he says, because of our sins and because of our transgressions, because of the way that we as human beings rebelled against God, which is every single one of us, we've all done that. He says, you were subject to God's anger. Now, some of you might have a hard time reconciling the fact that God could be loving and angry. I want to help you understand. God created the world, which means he owns it all. And because he owns it all, he's in charge of everything. And he's the one who gets to set the boundaries and the borders for how we behave and what we do. He gets to set kind of the the game plan. And when we step outside of the game plan that God has set and we rebel against him because he created it and he owns it and he rules it all and, and he gets to set the boundaries, he gets a right to be angry. I mean, he wants us to live a certain way and he is perfect, all wise, knows everything, knows what is best for us. And we just walk away from him. Like, no, God, we'll show you how this is done. I mean, just put yourself in that place. Would you not be angry? But here's the difference between the way we would be angry and the way God is angry. If I was God, I would say, I'm going to show you. And you would be gone. I mean, if I was God and I was angry, I would just wipe you off the face of the earth. I mean, I'd just be like, gone. I don't like what you did there. Gone. Right? But that's not what God does. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, we were subject to God's anger. But look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in love and mercy, Loved us so much. That doesn't make any sense. Some of you might have a hard time understanding how God can be angry. I have a hard time understanding how God can love us so much. We were subject to God's anger, and He has every right to be angry because He's righteous and holy and perfect and wise. And we walked away from Him. But God doesn't pour out wrath in His anger, He does exactly the opposite, He pours out love. This is amazing. This is amazing. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. We deserve everything we've got coming to us. And God says, I love the world so much that I'll give myself. Come here, son. I got a job for you. I want you to go down there. 
I want you to become one of them. I want you to live like them. I want you to identify with their humanity. And then I want you to die. Now, I told you earlier that I love you, but I don't love you enough to give you one of my sons. I don't have that kind of love. But God does. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And he did that so we could be reconciled to him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what it is all about. God is so rich in mercy. So rich in mercy that he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us because of our sins. And we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of our works so that no one can boast. There's nothing you could do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you could do to reconcile yourself to God. But it's okay because God already did it. He already took care of it. He's already done the work because he wants you to live in relationship with him. Which brings me to the fourth part of this story, which is where is this story heading We've talked about the beginning. God created everything just the way he wanted it to be. We walked away from God. That caused separation. God comes through his son and he dies on the cross. And and through that reconciliation work, we can have a restored relationship with God. But where is all of this heading? We started in Genesis 1 and 2. I want to take you now to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in Revelation 21. This is... For those of you who don't know the Bible, this is the last book. Genesis is the first book. Revelation is the last one. This is how the Bible talks about it at the end. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. I don't know if you understand the beauty of what's happening here, but if you go back to Genesis 1, God creates everything and it's perfect. And at the end, when he comes back, he makes it all new. He makes it perfect again. Why would God do that? Because God wants to make his home among his people. The same God who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the book of Genesis is the same God who will dwell right in the middle of his people in the book of Revelation at the end. And for all of eternity, we will be with him. He is our God and we are his people. And when you really understand where we go from Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, this is what it boils down to. It's all about relationship. 
From start to finish, there is no other theme in the Bible that rises above the level of relationship. This relational God, the God who exists in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of self-giving love, creates the world so that God can create humanity and place us right in the middle of it. And what is our purpose? To live in relationship with God and with each other. And even though sin takes us off track, God is so committed to relationship that he's willing to give his only son to die for us, to reconcile us back to the Father. Why? So we can live in relationship with God and relationship with each other. And where is it all heading? It's heading to a moment in time where when the trumpet of God sounds and the eastern sky splits, those who are dead will be raised to new life again. And those of us who are alive and remain, we will be changed in an instant, in a moment, and we will be with God forever. This is where it is heading. This is why God, at the, very, at the very center of Scripture, when Jesus is asked, what are the most important commandments? Just two. Love God and love each other. Because it's all about relationship. So what in the world does this have to do with our lives tomorrow morning when we wake up? I'm so glad you asked. Two things. First, for those of you in this room or listening online who are already followers of Jesus Christ, what all of this means for you is you need to be faithful. You need to be faithful. Second Corinthians chapter five is a powerful, powerful passage of scripture. This is the passage of scripture where Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new is now here. All of this is from God who loved us and reconciled us to himself and he's given us the very message of reconciliation. We are ministers of reconciliation for him. In fact, we are Christ's ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us, as if God were saying through us to the world, be reconciled to God. And he goes on down to verse 21 where he says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, God wiped away your past. I know that for some of you in this room, you feel like your past is still holding on. And I get it. You, you were formed in a way of living and God wants to disciple you into a whole new way of living. But what you need to understand is that when you came to faith in Jesus, the old was wiped away and the new is now here. You are a new creation in Christ. And I love the fact that Paul uses the creation language. 
You are a new creation. And what is God doing in your life? He's turning you into the very righteousness of God. Some of you don't feel like the righteousness of God right now. You think, if you knew my life, even though I'm a follower of Jesus, there are things inside of me that don't look much like Jesus. Well, guess what? He is doing a work in you. He's changing you, and he's shaping you, and he's forming you. If you'll just let him do it, he's turning you into the very righteousness of God. He doesn't just want to look at you as holy. He wants you to be holy. This is what God is doing inside of you. And all along the way, what does God expect from you? That you would be his ambassador. You know, you know, we talked about this in the first week of the series, that you are his representative. Paul's revisiting this idea that you are Christ's ambassador. You represent him in this world. Which means you gotta be faithful. And to bring this back to relationships, again, I'm zooming in close now. And I'm gonna just speak as honestly and directly as I can. What does it look like for you to be faithful? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you are single, you should remain celibate. The world will tell you differently, but don't listen to them. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, remain celibate if you are single. There is no place for sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. So if you are single, remain celibate. That's what it looks like for you to be faithful. And as a single person who maintains celibacy, you can faithfully image the presence of God in this world and glorify the one who saved you. If you are same-sex attracted and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, the world will tell you that there are different ways that you could live. I'm gonna tell you that your call from God is to love God so much that you will be obedient to his word. There is no relationship outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman where sex in the word of God is ever approved of. So for you to be faithful as a same-sex attracted person means that you love God so much that you would be obedient to him and you would forego having sex in the way that you would prefer to because God means that much to you. It's what it means to be faithful. And if you are married, a man and a woman in a marriage covenant, honor your covenant to each other. Do not look at pornography. Do not bring other people into your marriage bed. Do not break your covenant and be unfaithful to your spouse. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called by God to honor that person that you have made a lifetime commitment to. And some of you, your marriages are struggling and it's hard and you don't like the person you're married to. But I'm gonna tell you right now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, be faithful to that marriage covenant. God will honor that. And there are all kinds of questions about abuse. And I want to be really clear here that if you're in an abusive situation, that there is a reason for you to separate. You should never put yourself in that situation where you're going to be hurt or harmed in any way because the person you're married to is not faithful to that marriage covenant. So you can separate from them. 
but I want you to give God every opportunity to redeem and restore that marriage so that your marriage can be a faithful witness to God's miraculous power. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm just calling you to be faithful. It doesn't do us any good, and I'm just talking to the church now. If you're not a Christian, just tune out for a second. It doesn't do us any good to point our finger at the world and say they're doing it wrong if we are not living our lives in godly ways. The way that we witness to the world first is the way that we live out our faith. So I want to encourage you this morning, just be faithful. Second thing I want to just talk about for a minute, and then we're going to have communion. And April's not here today, so she can't get mad at me. Kayla's down in the kids, so she'll, she'll let me have it tomorrow. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to talk to you for a couple minutes. Because I think the story of Scripture invites you to put your faith in Jesus. God created you to have first a relationship with him. And there are some of you in this room right now today who do not have a relationship with him. And you are missing out on the purpose for which God created you. And God invites you today to put your faith in him. You see, we all have a problem. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. God had a plan, a pathway for our lives. We rebelled, we went a different direction. And here's the thing, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us that. The wages of sin is death. And here's what that means. There is a price to pay for our sin. We will pay it or we can accept the payment Jesus has already made. The choice is ours, but there will be a payment for sin. That's why Romans 6.23 not only says the wages of sin is death, it says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The problem we have is sin, but the solution for that problem is Jesus. God demonstrates his own love for us. Romans 5.8 says in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus, the one who had no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. That means Jesus is the only one who could pay the price for our sin in our place, and he did that, which is why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't being mean here. He's not being exclusive here. He's just saying, I'm the only one who could do this for you, and I've done it for you. Which is why in the book of Acts, we learn that there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which you can be saved except the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who saves. And the way that you respond to that, if you are not a Christian and you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, is you got to believe. This is where faith comes into the picture. In John chapter 1, verse 12, Jesus himself says, if you believe in me, I will give you the right to be called a child of God. Notice the relational language. He's not saying, I'll let you be in my kingdom. I'll let you be a subject or a servant. No, no. He says, I'll, I'll make you my child. And you'll be able to call God father because that's how God created you to be from the beginning. And so the book of Romans tells us that if you want to receive, you've got to actually 
believe in your heart and you've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when you do that, you will be saved. In that moment, God will change you. He'll make you into a brand new creation. The old is gone. The new will be here. And you can begin a journey toward the righteousness of God. And so this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is your invitation to faith. The book of Revelation chapter three, verse 20 says this, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. God's not going to bust down the door. He's not going to break in on you and force you to, to live in relationship with him. But he says, if you just open that door, I will come in and we'll have fellowship. We'll have relationship with each other because it's all about relationship. And so this morning, if you're here, I want everybody just for a moment to bow your heads, close your eyes. I don't want anybody looking around. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe today, maybe today, it's made sense for the very first time in your life what this whole Christian thing is all about. And you might not understand it all. You might not know the answers to all of your questions. But yet this morning, if you're honest, you feel that knocking at the door of your heart. You, you believe that there is a problem that you have and that Jesus is the answer to that problem. He is the solution. And you sense he's knocking at the door of your heart saying, will you let me in? Will you open the door and welcome me into your life so that you can be a child of God and we can live in relationship and I can change you and make you new and make you into everything that I want you to be and you can begin to experience life the way God intends for you to experience it. And if that's you this morning, all I want you to do, I'm not gonna embarrass you or draw attention to you. No one is looking around. All I want you to do right where you're at, if you sense the Lord knocking on the door of your heart, I just want you to raise your hand up high so that I can see it. I want to acknowledge it and I want to pray for you. So if you're here this morning and you want to accept Jesus, you want to believe in him, you want to put your faith in him, just raise up your hand high and keep it up just for a moment. Is there anybody in this room who's ready to accept Jesus? God, you know every heart in this room. You know every life that's represented in this place. And God, I just pray for those in this room and those who are watching online right now. I just pray, God, that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts and in our lives and in our souls. Continue to draw us to yourself. And God, if there's anything in us, Lord, a question, a barrier, a a pattern of behavior, something that, that we need to get rid of, Lord. I just pray that you would do your work in us and that, God, whatever barriers, whatever obstacles, whatever challenges, whatever walls we have to overcome to find that relationship with you, that, God, you would tear down every wall, break down every barrier, remove every obstacle, and welcome us into your family. God, as we conclude this service with communion, I just simply pray right now that you would prepare our hearts to receive your grace today.
through this sacred act. So continue to guide us and direct us in these closing moments of our service. And for how you work, God, we're gonna give you the thanks and praise. We pray it in Jesus' name.